The wonderful story of love. What a beautiful song in so many ways, a challenging message, and what a very refreshing one as well. It's also true that the other songs that we sang have within them messages of such encouragement. That first song in particular as we sang about heaven and the sweet refrain of looking forward to that beautiful place. It is good, as mentioned earlier, to see each and every person who's able to come together today. We're delighted for your presence, and all of us desire that we may worship the God of heaven in a way to please Him, and that we can certainly encourage and edify each other. You'll notice that the lesson that I have selected for today is one that perhaps has an unusual title. On the one hand, it makes mention of a country upon earth, namely Israel, and also it makes reference to land. I say all of that because the particular slide that's next will basically develop the thinking behind the offering of a message like this one. I believe, as we all well aware, the country that we call Israel is a country that occupies a very significant and important thinking in the mind of many people, especially religious people. It's not unusual as you drive along the thoroughfares or the roadways to see a particular marquee in front of a particular religious building that says, Pray for Israel. On another occasion, a marquee or some other combination of matters may refer to something about Israel, desire for Israel. Well, today we will give some thought to what about Israel? Does the Bible, in fact, teach that we should make careful thought for a prayer for the physical nation of Israel? If so, we need to know what that is and also why it might well be that way. But if that's not what the Bible teaches, then we ought to be solidified in our understanding and ready to appreciate a beautiful teaching from the Word of God on that point. At the very bottom of that slide... I've asked you to reflect on what, again, is easy to often see. Sometimes you see bumper stickers. You, again, will hear radio personalities. You will even see other references to pray for Israel. Should we pray for Israel? Should we, in fact, talk about that land in such a way as to what they have in mind? Well, let me step through a few thoughts with you. There is a, a particular means of teaching. It's a doctrine. It goes under the heading of dispensational premillennialism. And those are certainly a mouthful of syllables. But the idea behind it really is something rather common. I suspect that if you were to just take a random poll of religious people, regardless what denomination they may well be in, probably three-quarters of them, would have some inkling to the correctness of premillennialism and maybe even the version called dispensational. If that be the case, I at least thought it might be wise to take just a moment, not long, surely, but just to solidify our understanding of some of the basics of it because this is in many ways what's connected to the emphasis given to Israel. Let's step through it like this. There are lots of prophecies in the Old Testament. You know it well. As you step from Genesis to Malachi, that Old Testament, there are so many prophecies, hundreds and in fact even thousands of them. And many of them actually have reference to what we would call land in Israel. Those who subscribe to this premillennial idea will be quick to adopt this philosophy. 
all those Old Testament prophecies made reference to an earthly kingdom. That is to say, when Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel is referring to the kingdom of God, they would be quick to say they were referring to a physical kingdom here on planet earth. That's what they say. But if you attach it to that physical understanding, they then will then take the next step. That's the reason Jesus came. In their thinking, the Lord came to this planet, being born again of Mary, and His purpose primarily was to establish a physical kingdom on earth. And He was going to be its king. That's what we often are told. But with that in mind, we now encounter a bit of an un, unexpected thing. The Jews rejected Him, and He didn't expect that. Again, they'll say the Lord came to establish a kingdom on earth and to be its king, but much to His surprise, the Jews didn't accept Him. And therefore, He chose not to establish the kingdom then. He was going to wait and do it later postponing it till a later time. And in the meantime, he established a church as an afterthought, as a plan B, if you will. And therefore, on that slide, the postponement of those prophecies now brings us to supposedly the Lord's going to return again. So they say at some point. And when he does, there's going to be a rapture. You may have heard some about that. Sometimes, again, you'll see bumper stickers or others make reference to, in the event of rapture, car will have no driver. Or in the event of rapture, plane will have no pilot. You've seen them all as well as have I. But supposedly the Lord's going to come back and He's going to secretly whisk away those who are His servants and leave all the other ungodly people behind. When that happens, we are told that that will usher in a seven-year period of tribulation. You might expect that with all the good people supposedly gone, those left behind, it's going to be a bad place here on earth. It's going to be a challenging place. It's going to be a place in which pleasant things will not rule the day. But maybe beyond that, you'll notice that seven-year tribulation period, we're told, is divided into two equal parts of three and a half years. The first three and a half years, those Jews that are on earth will make a mass return to the area of Judea. Could I say Israel? They will return and they will reestablish the Old Testament system of worship. They'll rebuild the temple. They'll offer their animal sacrifices. They will engage in those things we read about within the pages of the Old Testament. For the second three and a half years of that period, there will be a rise of the Antichrist. A central figure of international acclaim will arise. He will capture the hearts and minds of people. They will, in fact, proceed to follow after this person. He will be evil, we are told. Finally, as you near the end of that second three-and-a-half-year period, Jesus Christ Himself will come back again. And He will defeat this Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon, so we're told. As you step through some of that slide, then again, this is in many ways a rather fanciful theory, a rather sensational one at that. 
But let me pause at this point to say, did you notice the place that Israel occupied in it? Look, the Jews are going back to a place on earth, and it's Israel. And therefore, there are many who think that the Jews were deeded the land of Israel by God Himself, and that land is theirs. And it will occupy central place in the Lord's return. In their mind then, there's a great admonition, pray for the well-being of this nation known as Israel. Because it's a central place in God's thinking. It'll hold a central place in what shall take place when the Lord returns. You'll notice on this slide that, of course, what I would hope you and I shall do over the next few moments is give some consideration to what we've just said. Is any of this true? Does the Bible teach this? Or is it the case that much of this, all of this, is a rather interesting result of the active imagination of the mind of men. Now may I say that the issue has only become worse since 1948. Now clearly this existed before then. You can read even in the 18th century writings connected to the importance of land in that part of the world. But in 1948 something interesting took place. You may recall World War II had ended only a couple of years earlier. And as a part of that agreement between nations after the war, a parcel of land was carved out. It would be called Israel. It would be the land known as Israel. And obviously much of that was due to the way in which the Jews had been treated in World War II. And now, with the official establishment of the nation of Israel in 1948... There has been a keen interest since that time in the near approaching return of the Master. Now all of this, of course, has occupied the thoughts of many a person upon this planet. What I hope for us to do, and admittedly we'll be brief about some of it, is to look about the land of Israel. Now this next slide is going to be one where I would wish to emphasize in a very strong way I realize in the course of a sermon, it is perhaps easy to then appreciate that which the preacher has said and is saying. But at the bottom of that slide, I wish all of us to very clearly cement in our thinking the the following truth. The Bible does not teach any of that which I mentioned a moment ago. It does not teach a rapture. It does not teach a tribulation period. It does not teach a physical battle of Armageddon. It does not teach a consideration wherein the Lord Himself will return in that kind of secretive fashion. It doesn't teach a thousand-year literal millennial reign upon earth either. And therefore, bottom of that slide, every single element of the premillennial position is wrong. So may we not be given to it, give no interest in it, not think that something about it is right. But all of that leads us to ask today, what about the land? This land known as Israel. If premillennialism isn't true, we need to understand what is the correct approach to thinking about that land of Israel. Now as we step through some of these thoughts, we're going to start in the Old Testament. And I've entitled this, The Holy Land. Let me be quick to say, I'm referring to it that way because that's what they call it, the Holy Land. 
It all begins in Genesis 12. Early in the Word of God, wasn't it true that the God of heaven, speaking to that patriarch Abram, who would later be known as Abraham, God told him very clearly to leave his current location, Ur of the Chaldees, and journey to a place that he would receive and that his seed would receive. You and I know very well the kind of place to which that referred. In fact, in the very next chapter, Genesis 13, the boundaries of that place were given, and we know it's the land of Israel. It's the land that today is that parcel of land. So please take note with me. God promised it to Abraham and to his seed. At this point, many are then quick to say, well, there it is. God promised it to them. And thus, even to this day, it is theirs. Let's not be too hasty, because let's read even further. As I've asked you to notice, that promise was not only stated to Abraham, it was repeated to his son Isaac, and it was repeated to his son Jacob, and even Joseph knew about the reality of that promise. May I call your attention to Genesis 50, wherein even Joseph knew, and he gave order that his bones were to be taken out of Egypt and buried in the land that the seed of Abraham would receive. So those patriarchs knew well about the promise, and oh, how they thrived in the thought of it. But now, may I ask you to revisit the lesson text that Brother Wayne read just a little bit earlier today. We find ourselves in Joshua chapter 21. And although you heard the reading of it a moment ago, let me invite you to listen again. Now this was centuries after the events of the day of Abraham. In fact, roughly 500 years have passed. And now God says this, And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which He sware to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. And the Lord gave them rest round about according to all that He sware unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them, the Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. Now would we each hear with clarity, we have the very matter of the land of Israel addressed. And in regard to that promise that God had made to Abraham, God here to Joshua, and thus through him to the children of Israel, said, I have given you all the land that I ever promised Abraham. He used a past tense verb. At this point, it had all been given. No more of that land, if you please, had any future element at that point. So at this point, the promise of Genesis 12 had been fulfilled in regard to land. As you and I look to the next slide, you might now appreciate a few of the details in between the two. The children of Israel, sure enough, journeyed after they left Egypt, and they came to this place. You'll notice that they crossed the Jordan River and entered it in Joshua chapter 3, and they dwelled there. And by the time Joshua neared the point of very close to his own death, he said, all the land that God ever promised has now been given. You and I might need to take careful note about this. 
the thought then that some element of Genesis 12 contains land that is yet to be fulfilled is absolutely wrong. The Word of God testifies that land had already been given. Isn't it interesting then to appreciate this? I would be a little bit remiss not to say there are some later Old Testament books. But all of that begs this question. Did God give any other promises later that touched that land? Well, the next slide at least leads you to consider some of that in our discussion. will be obviously somewhat brief. But it all begins like this. You and I will recall the children of Israel did dwell in that land, and they did so for quite some period of time. But might we never forget that their habitation of that land was conditional. That is to say, God didn't just simply say, this land is yours forever regardless what happens. He said, this land is yours if you will obey me. That is to say, if they were to keep His statutes, His laws, His regulations, then and only then did God promise to them that they would be able to maintain their residency in that land. Now the fact is, as the Old Testament journey proceeds before us, the time came that the people of Israel did not obey the Lord as they should have. And God made determination to take the land away from them, to give it to somebody else. Many of the prophets bring those thoughts before us. We can read about that in Isaiah. We can read about it in Jeremiah, perhaps in particular. Even Ezekiel dwelled at a period of time in which the people had already been taken off that land because they had not kept the commandments of God. But the point is, their residency there was conditional. Now, it is true that when God took them off the land and they were taken to Babylon in captivity, He did promise them that they would be allowed to return, and so they were, as the book of Ezra details. In one final observation, may I now ask you to think about the New Testament, at least briefly. What about Israel from the perspective of the writings of Paul or Peter or John? you'll notice that the only primary references we find in the New Testament to the characterization of Israel is in words like these. Would you turn with me to Galatians chapter 6? We'll read somewhat briefly, only one verse there. But there's a reference to Israel. And it's a reference that speaks volumes for you and me today. In verse number 16 of that closing chapter to the, to the book we call Galatians, Paul wrote and said, And as many as walk according to this rule, what rule? The rule of the gospel. The blessedness of the gospel system. That is to say, a New Testament Christian following the things of God and serving Him to the best of our capacity in faith. As many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. Paul made reference to Israel. Question, was he talking about land? Was he making reference to this territory you and I would call today the nation of Israel? No, he wasn't. Notice he's talking about a people. Could we be so brief as to describe it like this? The Israel of God is the church of today. It is those who walk after the rule God has given those who in faith have submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord and Master, 
those who then subscribe to the faith of the Lord and proceed to serve Him in that way. May I say, you and I, as Christians of the world today, are those who are the Israel of God. And that's not the only place that kind of presentation is made. I've asked you to notice at the bottom of that slide several additional verses such as Acts 26, verses 6 and following, Ephesians 3, verses 1 and following, as well as Galatians chapter 3. All of that highlights that the way in which the idea of Israel is put before us today is indeed very, very different. Now this next, uh, or at least the idea at the bottom of that slide, will be one that allows me to say this. We've learned, or at least you've heard me say so far, the premillennial system is not true. The emphasis on the physical land of Israel is not anything the Bible teaches today. Isn't it true that Jesus put it like this? In John chapter 4, why don't we read a few of the verses. This was that familiar scene in which Jesus spoke with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. As a part of that discussion, she asked him a question. May I begin reading in verse number 19. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, Believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye know what? Ye, ye know, ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. I think we'd have to commend this Samaritan woman, among other reasons, for the following. She saw a blessed opportunity. Here is a prophet. He can answer my question. Now, Jesus, being a Jew, she said, Well, you folks say that only in Jerusalem can we worship. Now, remember, that's where Israel is. But yet the Gentiles worshipped in a different location. And she asked him, so which is it? May we never forget what the Lord answered. He said, woman, believe me. The hour is coming and now is when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The place won't matter. Do you hear the Lord say that? The place no longer will matter. Anywhere one worships Him in spirit and truth will be acceptable be it Putnam County, Tennessee, be it Adelaide, Australia, be it Shanghai, China, makes no difference. The placement will no longer matter. So Jesus there seemingly said that Israel will not occupy a principal place that might be recognized as the Holy Land. And so it is. Today, there is no Holy Land on earth. I use that title only because people do. There is no holy acreage, if you will, on the planet. It is such that anywhere people worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, that place is acceptable worship. That place is a place wherein the kind of appreciation will please God. As far as some special importance to the nation we call Israel, there isn't any today. 
But I close the lesson by directing your attention to Isaiah 62. In that chapter, you have one of the most familiar passages to which often our attention is turned, and they'll say, well, there it is. Isaiah 62 says that Israel is this special place on earth to God. Well, why don't we look at a few verses in Isaiah 62 and see if that's what it says. So far, we've learned that we would expect that to not be what it says. So in that chapter, may I call your attention, verses 1 and following, begin by highlighting this, For Zion's sake, and you'll notice the word Jerusalem quickly appears, so clearly he is referring or he is making a reference to a place that you and I would identify as Jerusalem and this place called Israel. Note verse 2. The Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory. Thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. That's not a reference to land. That's a reference, you see, to the name which followers of God would be blessed to wear. Acts eleven twenty six is a fulfillment of that prophecy. The word is Christian. And thus, God gave the name that He wanted His followers to wear. And notice it's connected to righteousness. I mean, it has nothing to do with this physical place you happen to live in. So, so far we haven't seen any reference to the actual physical territory of Israel. Now, verse 3, "...thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God." In light of the context, who is this? Those who subscribe to this premillennial idea say, well, that's Israelite people. Those people, Jews that live in Israel, it is not. We just learned in the previous verse, he's talking about Christians. Christians are a royal diadem to God. They're His chosen people. They're the ones who follow in faith the teachings of His Son. He's talking about Christians, not people who live in the physical land of Israel. Verse 4, Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken. One more time. Those who otherwise are put off or cast aside or persecuted for the things of this earth. God appreciates and loves those that are His own. As you slide further into the chapter, now come with me to verse number 12, closing verse. They shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and thou shalt be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Now again, many will look upon that and say, well look, this city of Jerusalem is never going to be forsaken by God. Israel's always going to be significant, physically and important. But you and I have already learned, that's not talking about the nation we call physical Israel. He's talking about the people of God. As we close this lesson today, with some of these appreciations about Israel, I hope that we've been reminded that what the world teaches concerning Israel and land and premillennialism is not biblically accurate. And aren't we thankful we know the truth on these matters because God has otherwise revealed it. It could well be that someone in this assembly today, upon reflection of your life, consideration of where you currently stand before God, may I ask, are you the Israel of God today? Only they are the ones who are right before God. 
Now, you might well not be amongst the Israel of God because you've never joined by volunteer character the nature of that organization. Jesus won't force you to obey Him. God will let you make the choice just as He lets me make that choice. You and I can choose to be a member of the Israel of God. You do that by obeying the gospel. Today, if you've never done that, oh, why not today? Why not today? You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God. He came to this planet. He lived and died on a cross, shedding innocent blood that you might have your sins forgiven. He didn't die for Himself. He didn't have any sin. But He died for me and you. Will you turn your back upon that? But belief is only, in essence, one of the first steps. Upon that belief, repent of those sins that have alienated you from the God of heaven. Ephesians 2.12 Upon that repentance, you are then prepared to make a verbal confession of your conviction in Christ as the Messiah. And then you are baptized, buried in water for the remission of sins. Now there's great significance in that baptism. The old man of sin, being dead, is buried. That's what we do to things that die. And then you rise and you creature in Christ. If you've begun that way of life, though, and have known the sweetness and the blessedness of it, but... For whatever reason, over the course of time, you haven't lived faithful to it. You have taken your name out of the role that is the Israel of God. You're no longer a part of it. Don't you realize the seriousness of your current situation? It's that Israel of God that's the only one that's going to be saved. Don't you want to be back in that number? Today, we'd be honored to make note of your confession and your repentance. And those are demanded of you by the God of heaven Himself. And we'll be delighted to pray to God. And He'll reinstate you to a place of faithfulness, a place of distinction and honor, a place of association directly to the fellowship of Jesus Christ. Today, if we could be of some assistance in either of those ways, it is a convenient time, special time, and a very exciting time to offer the Lord's invitation while together we stand and while we sing.